So you've just mentioned then this machine that sort of that has this blanket of chocolate coming down. I'd like to know how big is the machine? Is there like a layer belt that goes underneath it? And as I'm about six foot two, would I fit underneath that on that layer belt to go through <laughs> that blanket of chocolate? Mm, no. Would my head fit in there? Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food here in France or around the world. They cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. But above all, they love it. Chocolate? Well, who doesn't love chocolate? I don't think I know anybody who doesn't love chocolate. In fact, I don't think I want to know anybody who doesn't love chocolate, except maybe those poor people that can't eat it for medical reasons. I'll give them a pass. The French have a love affair, I'd say, with chocolates. They're an extra special treat to spoil yourself or a gift for a loved one or a friend. But what is chocolate ganache? That's the question I'm asking today because I've seen it on the TV, on TV shows, magazines, books and in menus, and it's often different. Today on Fabulously Delicious, I'm joined by a man who has made chocolate his life. He wasn't trained to be a chef, but started his foodie career later in life, and that change has led Vladdy to being a true chocolatier. Vladdy Kuchowski, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you for having me. Before we get into today's chop, chop subject, which I talked about before, which is chocolate ganache uh, in particular, I wanted the audience to get to know you a little bit. And uh, something that I found that was fascinating for everybody, and probably including yourself, was where was your father born? My dad was born in uh, Polish embassy in Paris in 1932. So I'm, uh, I'm half Polish and half French. But I, you know, I've my family's always lived in France. Uh, wow! So he he was actually born in the embassy. Yes, his family were were with the embassy, and you know, after they 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 stayed in France through the war, went to the free zone, and then when they came back to Paris, uh, you know, uh, Russia took over Poland, and that was the end of their Polish life. They they stayed in France uh, with suitcases and a few kids, and figure out. How to survive. <laughs> right. So your dad then, he grew up in Paris. Yes. Yes. All his life. Yes. Wow. And you grew up there as well. Is that correct? Yes. I grew up in Paris. Ah, so you're a true Parisian. Yes, I am a right. Parisian. <laughs> <laughs> so Vladdy's a very Polish name. Is that your your whole name or did you get a French one as well? My first name is Jean-Pierre. What happened is when my parents uh, gave me my first name, they wanted to name me Vladislaw. Vladislaw, it's a fo- Polish first name, but uh, that was denied by the French government uh, when they tried to get a birth certificate. So they had to figure out something quickly. And uh, my dad's first name was Jean and his middle name was Pierre. So they did Jean-Pierre as a first name. But I was always called Vladi. Jean-Pierre is on official paperwork on, in school when I was in school, but... Yeah, I'm always uh, called Vladdy. <laughs> oh, well, it's always good to have two names, you know, Vladdy. So, you know, that could come in handy. <laughs> well, it, it was very handy with my dad because I did a lot of adherence for him. Uh, basically, we had the first name, the same first name. So we, uh, I was, uh, you know, used a lot as a kid to go get some paperwork or get some things I needed to sign because you didn't have time or whatever. Assuming that time in Paris when you grew up was the 80s and the 90s. Yes, yes, how was, exactly. How was Paris different in the 80s to the 90s to now? 
Well, it's to me, uh, we, we go back to France every year, um, now more than uh, just one time a year. But for the since I moved to, to America, I would go every year. I made a point to bring my kids to America, uh, to France. But uh, what I noticed more is, um, especially because of Europe opening up uh, a lot more tourists uh, uh, year round, it used to be where Paris was more seasonal. I mean, there's always tourists, but but now it seems to be busier all the time. And no matter the month, it's busy, busy, busy. Where as a child, I remember, you know, there was um, the summer season. We had basically tourist seasons. Uh, the Parisians basically owned Paris uh, uh, off season and, you know, escape in August uh, and let, let it for the tourists. But uh, now it seems to be more busy than ever. You studied at the Sorbonne in Paris. Like many people I chat with, you didn't actually study to be a chef though, did you? What did you study? No, I studied management. Um, I, I've always wanted to to cook. Uh, since I'm a little boy, I, I was very interested in cooking. Uh, I spent a lot of time with my mom and my grandma cooking. And But um, I'm not sure. My dad influenced me more. My dad was a businessman. He said, you know, um, go study management, you, you'll you see. And I had other passions. So it was something that was more generic and I went for it. I didn't finish it actually. I just, uh, I had one more year to go and then moved to America. So, but um, I tried to follow my passions. I had two passions. One was car racing and I tried, um, I failed, but I ran out of talent and money. But uh, But the food I've always wanted to, it's always been part of my life for sure, always. And and uh, I don't know if I was very young. I think it's the idea of being a chef, uh, going to chef school, culinary school and chef school, and the idea of working, you know, long nights every day was not really my thing. Um, so that's probably also another reason why I didn't go in that direction. But um, later in life, it just, when I met Shannon, it made sense. We we started that together, and uh, both our experience um, just made this happen. So, why wasn't being a chef then something on the radar when you were young that you didn't go to culinary school first as opposed to Sorbonne? There was a bit of family pressure, I think. Um, also, it was it was still a time where um, I think there was a, a stigma, you know, maybe a class stigma where. Becoming a chef, you you quit school at sixteen. You don't have your baccalaureate. You don't go to school. And um, I come from a family where both my parents didn't finish high school for various reasons. Uh, they were pretty much forced by the by what was going on around them to not finish school. And uh, so you know, I and also I I knew someone uh, when I was sixteen. I was always uh, I was working. Um, uh, I had a part time job somewhere, and they. One of the my boss's son was going through culinary school and and started to work in in restaurants uh, in the evenings and and I thought I don't know I just it's a life that I was not maybe interested to have I mean I loved food but not to the point of you know having my evenings my weekend um, doing that so and so with the Polish heritage in your family was there a lot of Polish influences in your life growing up or was it all French because you were living in Paris yeah it was all it was actually mostly French and uh more than Polish uh, we had American influence because my dad used to live in America and 
spoke English without any accents. He, he only worked for Americans. And when he started his company, I would say 90% of his clients were Americans. So we had a lot of American influence as a kid. Um, my dad would order things from L.L. Bean. I mean, had clothes from L.L. Bean, had things from L.L. Bean. Uh, we were very, yeah, we had a big, um, I would say, American influence beside, you know, the dominant French influence. Because my mom is a true French and she she loves, she's a true Parisian uh, and she loves the, you know, the art and everything that the culture of France and, and, and Paris offers. And was she the cook at home? Yes, yes. My dad um, didn't cook. <laughs> he worked a lot and didn't cook. Uh, the only thing I've ever seen my dad cook was uh, pasta bolognese. Uh, that's it, you know. Um, he made the sauce, so he did. He was making a very good sauce, but that's the only thing he cooked. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners out there that would crave and dream of having a French mother cooking for us. So, what describe what was a, a dinner like at home? Oh, my mom cooked everything and and experimented with everything. She was never afraid um, to to try things. She was raised in, raised in a family where there was always very very good food. And and um, and a lot of food. Um, she was in a big family, and she, I think she helped as well a lot in, in at home. Uh, but we cooked. I mean, it was diversified. We we we. My mom had a full meal at dinner every day. Uh, the only day where we didn't have a meal was Sunday night, where we was we called it the breakfast evening. So we, you know, we. We, we, that's what Sunday night, we didn't have to, we just ate whatever we wanted, you know, hot chocolate, coffee, whatever, and bread and jam. But, uh, during the week it was, I mean, on Sunday, uh, in France, it's a tradition. I think, uh, you have a big Sunday meal, lunch meal. Um, of course, as kids, we always wanted French fries. Uh, that's, you know, uh, chicken is common. Uh, my mom made very good roast beef, very good, uh, um, civet de lapin, rabbit, um, um, we did, um, and sh- you know, we experimented with a lot of things. Uh, I was more, my brother is, was not too attracted by the kitchen and he still is not very good at it, but my mom and I, we, we just spent a lot of time in the kitchen. Every time there was something to experiment, she would ask me, let's, let's go figure out something. Let's, let's play with this. And you know, if it's not good, so be it. Um, you know, we'll go, we'll go out. My dad would love love going out. My mom sometimes would prepare a very fancy meal and my dad would come home eight o'clock and say, let's go out and just we all packed and went out, you know. Uh, and my mom just had a big smile and uh, I think my dad was very, very, very spontaneous and my mom loved that in him. So uh, even if she had cooked everything, let's go out. We, it was still more fun. <laughs> How did you decide then to get into the food industry and in particular chocolate? Well, the the food industry, when I was um, going through college, I worked also in in different, uh, you know, I had a side job. And I remember uh, I started by doing desserts um, for the other employees for for a a birthday, for example. And, And I loved experimenting on my own. I tried new things and um, and I would always love to try to make my own birthday cake. And um, like this, when I moved to America in my late 20s, um, you know, life was not as easy uh, financially as it is now. And I wanted to, uh, one thing I knew how to do is to cook. 
So I started to make some French desserts and just by word of mouth, I quite started a little company in, in a small town and and I would get orders every week, you know, I would just, I would make a marquise, I would make a, some kind of a puff pastry dessert with candied oranges inside uh, and, and, um, and marzipan and different chocolate cakes, um, did all that um, on the side throughout my life and then um, and then I met Shannon and we just together um, she had the idea of you know starting she, we, we used to have a chocolate company in, in our village in our town and um, when they closed um, we missed it and it was a different type of chocolate it was you know not the, the French style and, and Shannon was um, one day read an article about this and thought man Maybe we should try that, and and I love the idea, and because I'd play with chocolate with my mom, and always was an addicted to chocolate. Uh, let's try it, and we 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 went for it. We trained, we took some training, and, and went for it. I was going to ask actually, chocolate here in France is regulated, and so like many things, something that might be called chocolate in the US isn't actually allowed to be called chocolate here in France. So how do you think that there's the chocolate is different from France and the US? Yes. And I mean, there's differences. I think the standard for um, the, the chocolate, basically to call it chocolate, the percent of cocoa butter in, in, the, in, the, main, in the main ingredient. And um, in America, the standard is lower. Actually, in France, it's not anymore France who dictate that. It's Europe and it's even, Europe lowered it a little bit compared to what it was when I was a kid. But, um, you know, here, the, the, the big companies like Hershey or that, they always try to lower that standard because they, they realize the big money for them is the cocoa butter. They can sell it to the cosmetic, make a lot of money with the cosmetic and substitute it with vegetables, oils. Um, but, you know, every time they, they try it, the chocolatier like us and some other large company, the last time this was on, on the table, Mars, uh, was just fighting it also against Urshin to keep the standard high. Um, for us, it doesn't really affect us because we, we only use European chocolate. I mean, pre- predominantly French and some Swiss, and um, that's usually what we use. We use some Spanish chocolate as well. But that's uh, so I, I import, I mean, I don't import it myself, but there's suppliers that um, import the chocolate for us. Um, some things are very specific that we have to, you know, order way ahead, months ahead, so I can get certain product that are very unique. But most of the our supply I can get very easily, uh, you know, in a matter of days. And so what's the difference then between that French chocolate and, say, the Swiss chocolate? Well, the, there's not a force or choice for chocolate. It's mostly uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the flavor uh, for certain things. Um, even, you know, we, when we pair, when we make ganache, when we pair chocolates uh, with, with a, an ingredient, a fruit or whatever the ingredient is, we, you have to be, you have to taste and sometimes it clashes with certain chocolate, the percentage of cocoa, the, the flavors, uh, they'll have a different, you know, a 61% of this brand will taste this and another one will be, might be a 70%, might be a bit more bitter or less bitter. Um, a lot of a lot of those factors will af- will basically, um, you know, um, dictate how we, we 
create a recipe. And so sometimes we'll use, you know, some chocolate pairs better with certain things. So it could be Swiss, it could be a, a French one from this company or from another company. But because we're a small company in America and we're, we're more like a French company in, in, for a chocolate, we're really using the French branding as a, as a, uh, you know, it, it carries a lot. So we want to try to, even though our flavors are more a combination of Shannon and I, American and French, and that's why it works, I think, uh, because we're not just French, but the, the French branding is important. So um, we try to use European chocolate, French predominantly. Our company is called uh, La Châtelaine Chocolat. So we have a French name. Uh, it means the lady of the castle. Uh, and we're in Bozeman, Montana. Uh, and we have two locations in Bozeman, Montana. And we, we do quite a bit of sales online as well. So the lady of the castle, the Châtelaine uh, Chocolat. So how did that come about, that name? Oh, we were just, yeah, but we were just uh, playing with different names, uh, all kinds of things. I mean, we even thought about Tartuffe because it's kind of a fun name and it's Molière and it, but um, all kinds of different names came about and but we like the idea of, of uh, a, a bit the nobility side of France so the castle the just and um, you know in just a matter of few weeks we just came up with that and you know it's a complicated name uh, f- most of our clients cannot pronounce it or have difficulties um, but you know it doesn't matter Lots of businesses around the world have been affected by the pandemic. How has the pandemic affected the shop and, and your business? Well, I mean, we took a hit like everybody, um, but we we um, we kind of reverted. We, we, we learned more about, you know, using our website uh, right away. Uh, we, uh, when the year when we, um, the, when the pandemic started, we shut down this in our town, like in France, every business was shut down. But because, uh, but we're lucky because we, um, the health department in our town uh, considered us um, necessity, so they allowed us to run, uh, but not but not open to the public. So it was just me and one of my kids and and uh, and one employee, uh, three of us, where we basically prepared Easter, and um, and we did online, and also we 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 added more items on our website. We were always, we didn't have a lot of items on the website. We had a lot of more items and we also advertised for pickup, you know, people with online order or phone order. And, you know, you drive by our front door and we'll just hand you a bag ready. And that worked out very well. We had a very good Easter, actually. We might not have had as much sales as Maybe the prior Easter, but we had uh, um, our cost. Uh, I mean, our our cost was lower because we didn't have as many employees and we were more efficient. And that was a very good Easter, despite the pandemic. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways that you can do this. The first, possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and a rating. A five-star one, well, that would be fabulous, especially if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. Share Fabulously Delicious around with your friends, family, co-workers or anyone that you know loves French food or just food in general. Are you a Patreon member? Well, if you can support Fabulously Delicious by becoming one, for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will receive exclusive Crave content just for you. 
You can find out more through the link in the show notes of this episode. On to today's subject, ganache chocolate. For those that don't know, can you tell us in layman's terms, so to speak, what is ganache? So a ganache is basically four ingredients. It is uh, chocolate, cream, uh, butter, and sugar. Um, that's It's a mixture of those four. And after that, you just add whatever flavor you want to it. It has a really interesting history, doesn't it? It was created by a, Pari- a Parisian playwright, apparently. Is this correct? Yes. Well, the story is there's a, a playwright uh, named Paul Sirodin, and he was um, uh, he. I mean, he opened a, a, a candy shop in Paris, Rue de la Paix, just a block from the Opera House. And he, um, one of his employees, I think, made a mistake and, and dumped some cream by mistake, some hot cream into a, a, a vat of uh, melted chocolate, and you know. Um, he, he was basically in trouble. Um, he was insulted by his boss. They called him. He called him a name called Ganache, which at the time, in, in this time, in the 19th century, that meant you know idiot, or stupid. Uh, and but because chocolate is expensive and and you don't waste, you know, in its in your kitchen general, if some mistake is made, unless it's it's you know spoiled, you you, you try to do something with it. So they they stirred it and. And they realized that it started to take and have like a pudding-like um, a texture. And that's how ganache was started. And and that Paul Sirodin, they, he had a store that was very, um, uh, that embraced the, the, his world of, of, you know, art and and, um, and playwrights and the, 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 the acting uh, scene of Paris. And so he started naming some ganache with uh, chocolate that were enrobed in, in names of plays or famous uh, famous plays from famous writers, and and it was a very uh, you know I guess a fun a fun store to go to. This original recipe being a mistake, is this a usual occurrence in professional kitchens? Like, are there other delicious things that we know of that have been created by mistake? Well, one one of the most famous to me, and it's one of my favorite desserts, is the tartatin. Uh, tartatin is a mistake. It's just uh, the tartatin sisters who. Had a restaurant and they once, uh, by mistake, flipped a, a apple tart. And because they were in a, in a under pressure of a restaurant, they they just cooked it that way. And after that, of course, they embellished it and, and worked with it. But they, it started from a simple mistake. And you know, and a lot of things like this. I mean, things happen in a kitchen, no matter how professional you are. Mistakes are made every day in every kitchen. Uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, great things happen out of mistakes. Oh, amazing. I don't know. They need to take this into consideration maybe on, <laughs> on MasterChef when I was on. <laughs> Any of those dishes that might have been a mistake, I mean, who's to know? They could be the ganache and tart tartans of the future. Mm-hmm. Who, who knew? Bloody, what's the difference then between the confectionery in that 18, 1860 period and what we would know as a patisserie now? A patisserie is more a baking store, you know. They sell baked products, uh, so usually they don't go together. Uh, like a patisserie will have some chocolates they can do uh, themselves, but they don't have usually equipment. And a chocolatey will have some big products, but in, in small quantities. And one of the main um, reason is the heat. Uh, when you have a bake uh, a bakery or you 
bake every day, uh, croissant or any type of things, you generate a lot of heat and heat is an enemy of chocolate. When you want to enrobe, when you want to temper chocolate, you need it to be in a very good tempered control room. You cannot be in, in uh, you know, if it's above, uh, in Fahrenheit, above 75, you can't temper chocolate anymore. It's too warm. You got to be at 20 degrees, you know, 20 Celsius or 70 degrees. That's perfect. But above that, it becomes complicated. So uh, us, we have the, the oven is as far as possible from the place where we're in robe uh, and the AC is on it. So we, we keep our space cool. I mean, even in the winter, uh, right now in, in Montana, it's um, minus, 10 cell, uh, uh, minus 10 Fahrenheit. It's very, very cold, like almost min- minus 20 uh, Celsius. And we, um, our shop, we had a problem with the heating system two days ago. Our temperature in our shop didn't go below 18 uh, Celsius or, you know, 67 uh, Fahrenheit because the, all our equipment generate heat on, the, on their own, the, the chocolate machine, the melters. And so we, even in the middle of winter, when it's just barely freezing outside, we have AC running in our shop to try to keep the place cool. And that's very important uh, for making chocolate. So I just think that's the main reason why you don't see more chocolate in, 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 in pastry and, and vice versa. Um, unless you're a large company or you do things offsite, um, like Maison Chocolat, you know, they have stores. They can bring more pastry because they can have two different kitchens and produce that way. Just quickly getting back to, so what was his name? It was Paul. Paul Sirodin. So he kept on being a playwright, is that correct? And, and he made plays about food. Yes, yes. I love, he, he did both. I mean, he, he plays um, a comedy, vaudeville type um, a plays, which was basically a lot happening in, in the 19th century. And he, uh, but also he named his chocolates after other plays, his or others. Uh, yeah, he, I mean, he must have loved food. <laughs> How do you make ganache? A ganache, uh, essentially, you just, uh, there's, you can do it many ways, but the simpler way is to have your chocolate uh, chopped in little pieces and you boil cream that you mix your cream and sugar. And when it's, after it boiled, you pour it over the chocolate, let it sit for a little bit so it all melt the chocolate. And when it's melted, you just stir it. And as, as you stir it, it's going to start taking and become a ganache. It will, you'll see, um, it'll, it becomes kind of pudding like it, it starts shining. It starts to be, um, very homogeneous. And, and that's when you start adding a little bit of butter to even smooth it out. But that's basically essentially what a ganache is. If you're using different types of chocolate, like white chocolate, for an example, does this change the way you make ganache? It, with a white chocolate, you have to use less cream. Cause there's a lot of fat. It's just, so we have to be white chocolate ganache are different recipes. Uh, milk chocolate ganache are different recipes. And often with the white chocolate for us, uh, and we do larger quantities, we need to pre-melt the chocolate. So we don't have, you know, all the ganache, our ganache are all different because of the ingredients we add to them and how we make them. But um, if there's not enough um, cream to, to the chocolate, you just have to melt your chocolate. You just have to mix them when they're at a fairly cool temperature. You want to mix them when they're super hot. Uh, around 110 Fahrenheit is when it mixes very well. 105, 110, the ganache mix very well. Sometimes ganache can be stiff and solid, a state, and sometimes it's liquid and runny. Why is that? It's 
uh, well, you can make them the way you want. Uh, for us, for example, if we, Shannon, she loves making, uh, she's very good at making chocolate cake and she loves to uh, cover it with, with, um, with a ganache. And uh, you can do it, you know, by, with the spatula and, and, and decorate that way. Well, we can pour a, a, a warm ganache and you need a more runny ganache. So you can make the ganache a bit more runny. Um, and also the chocolate you use will affect that. But after that, it's more a matter of the ingredients you use. Um, like we have some ganache for us in our chocolatey, we use, uh, we, we offer a lot of different types of chocolate. We offer chocolates that are cut and unrobed and little squares. Uh, we offer molds, we offer shells. And the reason why we, off- we use mold, we use shells is those are for ganache that are too runny. We can't cut those. We cannot pass them under an, an unrober. They are very difficult to handle. So, you know, we have a ganache, for example, is passion fruit. Uh, it's milk chocolate with a lot of passion fruit puree. It's very runny and it's it's very smooth, but it's, you know, impossible to handle, um, you know, in a solid state. Uh, we, we put it in a shell, in a mold, uh, just for that reason. So what you add to it will affect its, its consistency uh, in the finished product. What is enrobing? Enrobing is basically coating your ganache. Uh, what we do is when we make a ganache, we will, you know, we let it set overnight. And when it's set, we'll cut it. Um, in little, uh, here we cut them a one inch square. And once they're cut, we just, um, at first, we, when we started, we would dip them by, with a fork. A dipping fork, we dip them in, in tempered chocolate, um, one by one. Um, and but after a while doing this, we realized we, the volume we need, we need a machine. So we ordered what's called an enrober, which is a machine that coats your chocolate. You, there's a curtain of chocolate pouring down the belt and you just pass the chocolate, your little squares underneath, and it's just uh, enrobed that way. And enrobing gives it its shelf life because it completely enclosed the ganache, like in a mold, basically. So it's, it, and it, and that allows you to decorate it the way you want. You can put a transfer to it. You can put, sprinkle something on top of it, uh, give it different shape. Um. So you've just mentioned then this machine that sort of, that has this blanket of chocolate coming down. I'd like to know how big is the machine? Is there like a layer belt that goes underneath it? And as I'm about six foot two, would I fit underneath that, on that layer belt to go through <laughs> with that blanket of chocolate? Mm, no. Would my head fit in it's there? It's very small. It's six inch wide. Our oh, machine. So it's no. It's, oh. uh, it's a small, yeah, you can't, uh, it's not the... Uh, uh, Willy Wonka at the Chocolate Factory. We're, we're a tiny company. Yeah, it would be fun to. And we've had employees who try to pass some things underneath there and says, you can't do this. We, we contaminate, you know, 40 pounds of chocolate if we, we got to be careful with all this. So, yeah, but it's it's fun. And it's a very magnet. Everybody, we have a window in our kitchen. A lot of clients come and look and those machines are just a, a magnet to, you know, for kids, for anybody. Because it's unusual and it's fun to watch chocolate dripping. (laughs) I love all things chocolate, and to be honest, but I'm often frustrated when I hear about tempering chocolate. So what is tempering chocolate? Well, chocolate is a, it's a very noble ingredient. It's very temperamental. Um, You have to uh, always be respectful of chocolate. No matter how experienced I am, if you try to 
rush the process, it's gonna slap you basically. So chocolate in a solid state, when you buy a chocolate bar, it's tempered, it's, it snaps, it's shiny, it's very beautiful. But when you melt chocolate, a chocolate will, uh, will separate. Uh, and here, when we have big vats of chocolate that stay melted for a few days, after a few days, you'll see a layer of cocoa butter floating on top because it's completely separated. And if you were to try to cool that chocolate, it would look very ugly. It looks like uh, chalk. Uh, it's it's not shiny at all, and it doesn't have a good texture to the mouth. It actually don't doesn't taste really good because it's not binded properly. So. What you have to do is you have to temper the chocolate. When you melt it, uh, you have to temper it to a, a, a temperature where the chocolate and the, the cocoa solid and cocoa uh, butters bent, I mean, um, uh, they, 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 they chemically um, bind together perfectly. And once they bind it perfectly, your chocolate becomes very shiny and, 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 and melt uh, and, and dries uh, snappy to, to the to the taste, to the mouth. But uh, to temper, you have to basically melt your chocolate and then lower the temperature of that melted chocolate to about, um, we do it 29 Celsius or 29 Celsius is 84, 85 Fahrenheit. And at that temperature, it tempers. It, it happens chemically. Um, and basically all you have to do is stir it uh, at that temperature and then bring it up back up by a few degrees to 32, 33, 89, 91 Fahrenheit. And at that temperature, it stays tempered all day and you can work with it. I mean, we have equipment that's temperature control, very sensitive. So they keep that chocolate perfectly tempered. Um, but it's, you know, um, tempering is affected also by the weather. Um, a perfect day, dry day, it's the tempering is perfect. Uh, if it's humid, it's a bit more complicated. Um, it gets thicker. Uh, so we, you know, we have to play with that as well. We, we are in a temperature controlled environment, but we don't have the, the resources to have a, a perfectly, you know, climate control environment. But we, we're lucky we live in Montana. We're in altitude, the, the air is very dry. So it really helps uh, our business. So if we're at home and we're wanting to make tempering chocolate, something that we need to use tempered chocolate for, how do we do that at home if we don't have your machines? Is there a quick fix? There's, it's easy to do. And, and I, I experienced that firsthand with my mom when I was a kid. My mom wanted to do, we, we decided we loved going to La Maison du Chocolat and they had those little orange strip dipped in chocolate. And so we decided to candy the oranges uh, skin and make our own, but they were awful. And the next day we went to ask why are it looks like this and not like yours. And the guy said, you got to temper your chocolate. So we did some research and we, learn how to do it just at home. And there's two ways to do it, but the easiest way is to melt your chocolate and then your bowl of, of, of melted chocolate, you you put it over a cool warm water, I mean cool water to cool the chocolate and you use a thermometer and control it and stir it and until it reaches that temperature. And once you reach that, that tempering temperature, you can move it to a, a warmer bowl, bowl and keep it... Um, uh, at a working temperature where it'll stay melted and, and, and you can use it for a little bit. Um, another way is to use a marble. Uh, when we do a workshop, we, we teach that with a marble, but not everybody has a marble at home. Um, you know, but a marble table or even a marble, uh, a cutting board is enough to, to temper. But 
tempering that way, you cannot use a thermometer. So you have, you need to have experience. You need to, you know, know how it looks the right time. It's just a matter of experience after that. But we, we, I do that once in a while in the shop, even though we have all this equipment, uh, we have so many different chocolate that we melt and temper that we don't have a machine per chocolate. So sometimes we, we don't have the white chocolate tempered and we need something for, to decorate something or whatever. And I'll just take a little, um, I mean, we might have it already melted, but not tempered. So I'll just use it on the marble and use a spatula and temper it in, in five minutes and give it to one of my employees to work with. Back to growing up and living in France, why do you think that the French love chocolate so much? I mean, it's it's been all around me all my life. Um, um, the f- first time I remember is hot chocolate. As a kid, we always had hot chocolate. Breakfast in France is hot chocolate and bread and jam. You know, that's what we had every morning. That's what we had at my grandma, wherever. It's always hot chocolate. And um, and we have chocolate shop everywhere. Uh, you know, no matter what town, even a small town, well, I mean, not tiny town, but every town has a chocolate shop in, in France. It's, uh, and we've had, you know, very good brands of chocolate. Um, I remember... Growing up with when I spent summers at my grandma, uh, she always had a, a pantry and it was always stacks of chocolate, baking chocolates. It was the brand was Meunier and it was just she used it because she, my grandpa loved a chocolate cake, so she would make a chocolate cake every week for him. And she always had a stack of chocolate and and she didn't mind we we help ourselves all day long, she didn't care. She was very happy, uh, it was not you know forbidden have fun, have as much chocolate as you want. And, and, you know, it's, I was always surrounded with chocolates as a kid. Kids, I mean, we all have chocolate. I mean, every kid in France has put a chocolate bar in his pocket and melts. Uh, I think it's just uh, common, more, more than candy, you know. Finally, the question, Vladdy, that I ask everybody that's on the, been on the podcast, what to you is the most fabulous thing about France? One thing I loved is is growing up, and, and I think I still appreciate every time you land in France, is the culture. And uh, the culture is, you know, it could be food culture, it could be, but the culture is around you. The creativity is around you no matter where you go one of our kid is going to film school right now in paris and he just he can't believe how his creativity is enhanced uh being in paris and being in a small town in montana because it's everywhere it's on tv it's in the streets it's on the bus it's it's what you eat it's it's the culture this creativity creative culture is around you and i mean that's what you know if that's i think that's what i, I really love and our friends also is so proud of it i mean it's Maybe it's arrogant, but we're proud of it. And we, we, we always try to to keep it going and, and, and protective, of the, the protective of it, even though we, we you know, let it run loose. Uh, we, don't, we don't mind mixing cultures, and, but we, we, we bring it into the French language, the French, we bring any culture into the French uh, culture and, and make it even better, I think, sometimes. Vladdy, thank you so much for joining us and teaching us today all about ganache chocolate and uh, letting us into your life just a little bit. I can't wait to visit Montana one day and uh, (laughs) try some chocolates in person. So thank you so much, Vladdy, for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. My pleasure. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Merci.
Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.